This is being recorded on Wadawaran country and I pay my respects to Indigenous elders past, present and emerging. The events discussed here occurred primarily on Wurundjeri land. In 1968, a young man named Tony obeyed the National Service Law and registered for National Service as a 20-year-old. When his date of birth was selected in the lottery for National Service, he undertook his army training with the other young men who were selected and then went with the army to serve for a year in Vietnam. In May 1970, Tony's father Desmond, who had been a soldier and fought for almost the entirety of World War II in almost every theatre of war, marched in the streets in a demonstration against the Vietnam War, while his son Tony was still serving overseas. Desmond was my granddad. Tony, my dad. Growing up, I had some sense of the Vietnam War. Dad had served, although he rarely talked about his experience. Australia sent troops, although nowhere near as many as America. In the movies, the Vietnam veteran was always a broken man, which didn't match what I saw in my own dad, but did occasionally see in men we knew. My dad was very involved in organisations like the RSL and Legacy and the Vietnam Veterans Association, and we always went to Anzac Day parades. My dad died when I was 20. He was just 52. It was a heart attack, and although as a child I hadn't seen him as terribly affected by his time as a soldier, his death was ultimately attributed to the post-traumatic stress he had thanks to his war service. Several years after his death, when I was teaching a unit on modern history and got to the Cold War, the curriculum materials I had inherited had me teaching the anti-Vietnam War actions that occurred in America. I had vaguely heard about some of this, but didn't know any of the details, so I rapidly educated myself. It got me thinking about whether Australia had experienced anything like those protests. I had vaguely heard about some big protests in the capital cities, but nothing more than that. Keep in mind here that I was at high school in the 1990s. The Vietnam War, which officially ended in 1975, was barely history. We just didn't learn about it. At uni... I did an arts degree, I mostly studied ancient and medieval history. For me, Australian history was all way too young. And yes, this is absolutely reflective of a dismissive attitude toward Indigenous history, which I've been trying to rectify ever since. At any rate, I started looking into whether I could replace the American content of my course with Australian content. By some good fortune... My school happened to have a copy of a documentary called Save Our Sons about a group of remarkable women in Melbourne who opposed the Vietnam War and National Service and whose actions even led to some of them going to prison. By even more immense good fortune, I got in touch with one of those women, Jean McLean, and she came and spoke to my students some of whom fell in love with her and others wanted to be her. The more I listened to her 
and the more I looked around. At that time, I couldn't find anything specific about the involvement of women in the protests. And the more sad I became that this seemed to be yet another arena where women's voices had not been recorded in much detail. Out of that frustration was born this project. Let me say at this point that the focus here is specifically on women who lived in Melbourne. I knew when I started that I needed to limit my research so as not to get overwhelmed, and since I was living in Melbourne at the time, it made sense to focus on that city. If you want a sense of Australian women's actions more broadly, Caroline Collins's book from 2021 is called Save Our Sons and looks at that organisation across the nation. Over the last several years, I've interviewed 57 women and one man about his mum. I've read student newspapers and ordinary newspapers, I've looked through archive boxes, and I have sent countless emails asking to be directed towards women who might have protested in any way, shape or form. Many people have been very generous with their time, responding to my questions and giving suggestions. Of course, the women who have been interviewed have had an enormous impact on the way I think about this era, the way I think about the whole idea of protest, and the debt the 21st century owes to those women and men who, on a mass scale, and really for the first time, showed that ordinary Australian people could object to government policy they found abhorrent. Before I keep going, I want to stress that this is in no way intended as an attack on the Australian soldiers who served in Vietnam, neither regular army nor national servicemen. I'm not saying anything against the thousands of young men who did register for national service. A lot of work has been done in the last few decades about the experience of Australian soldiers in Vietnam, and that's a really worthwhile and important aspect of historical inquiry. However, I don't think it's a case of either sympathy and compassion for soldiers, on the one hand, or, on the other, examining the protests against the war they were serving in. To suggest that the two are mutually exclusive is reductive and just plain unhelpful. Both things definitely happened, and I think both things need to be understood. Ordinary soldiers need to be heard, and the voices of protesters also need to be heard. I should also note that I'm not necessarily condoning everything you'll hear discussed on this podcast. I can't know for sure whether I would have objected to the Vietnam War and National Service, or whether I would have participated in these actions. I think... I'd like to think I would have, but actually most people in Australia supported the government's decisions and I can't claim that I never follow social expectations. So please keep those caveats in mind as you listen. Let me now provide some context for the issues being discussed in this podcast series. In individual episodes, I'll explain relevant dates and so on, But this is to give a general overview of what was happening. A lot of the following statistics and dates I've taken from the Australian War Memorial website. First, one significant issue we're going to be talking about a lot in this series is opposition to national service. 
which is also often referred to as conscription. It has a contentious history in Australia. Before World War I, there was compulsory military training for males between 12 and 26 years old, but that did not include service overseas. In World War I, the government tried to introduce overseas service, but plebiscites held in 1916 and 1917 saw the Australian population reject the idea of overseas service, making us, by the way, the only English-speaking country to not have overseas service conscription for fighting in that war. The compulsory training was ended in 1929. Then, ten years later, at the start of World War II, such training was reintroduced, but again only for service within Australia. In 1943, the federal government passed a law that expanded the definition of Australia to include New Guinea, which might seem odd, but at that time was under Australian kind of rule. It was a mandate. This meant that men could be sent to New Guinea as part of that compulsory military service. So functionally, this was conscription for overseas fighting. Compulsory training was discontinued briefly after World War II, then revived again in 51, and discontinued in 1959. Now we come to the time that we're interested in. So in 1964, the Prime Minister of Australia, who was the Liberal or Conservative, Sir Robert Menzies, his government introduced national service. So that's 1964. At this point, it was just for training within Australia. However, the next year, 1965, the government changed the law such that national servicemen, who were sometimes called nashos, could be sent overseas. And at this time, it functionally meant going to Vietnam. The National Service Act meant that every 20-year-old Australian man was legally required to register for national service. It needs to be pointed out that this is actually a year younger than the legal voting age, which was 21, and this aspect was one of the problems raised by anti-conscription protesters. Another issue was that, as I mentioned with my dad, birthdays were chosen basically as marbles from a lottery barrel a few times a year, So it was completely random. The idea that conscription would apply only to a few unlucky men based on birth date was contentious. If your number was chosen, you could get a deferment or an exemption on a few grounds, and theoretically it was possible to be classed as a conscientious objector. But anecdotally, that seems to have been really difficult. In the end, over 15,000 national servicemen served in the Vietnam War, with 200 being killed and 1,279 wounded. National service was then abolished by the new Labour, or Progressive, government under Gough Whitlam in December 1972. Second, As well as opposition to conscription, we'll be talking about opposition to the Vietnam War itself. 
Now, the explanation for exactly why the war happened and what Australia was doing there has a long and much discussed and somewhat contentious history. Vietnam had most recently been a French colony. The Vietnamese had eventually kicked them out by 1954 after a lot of fighting. The country was divided in two for what was meant to be a short period before elections to reunite them. A nationalist and communist party took control of the North under Ho Chi Minh and the South was capitalist and theoretically democratic and they were aligned with the United States. In 1965, the US and then Australia got involved in supporting South Vietnam who were fighting against what was seen as communist insurgents from the North as well as communist sympathisers living in the South. Australia started winding back its involvement five years later, late 1970, with many troops being withdrawn in 1971. Australian combat troops were completely out of Vietnam by December 1972, and Australia was officially out of combat in January 73. During Australia's involvement, 60,000 Australians served, with 521 killed and over 3,000 wounded. On a very local level, to really understand some of what the people talk about in this series, you need to be familiar with a fascinating little piece of legislation called Bylaw 418. In Melbourne, one of the key actions taken by protesters to raise awareness of their cause was handing out leaflets on the street. By Law 418, though, was a Melbourne City Council statute that prohibited the distribution of leaflets without a permit. Now, prior to the mid-60s, this bylaw was basically being ignored. Leaflets were regularly distributed by commercial concerns, with no consequences. However, when people started distributing political pamphlets, the council seemed to suddenly remember their bylaw, and many people got arrested and were given fines. For their part, protesters argued that their right to freedom of speech was being impinged. Plus, it seemed to some that the council was doing the federal government's work, since if the leaflets urged young men not to register for national service, the distributors were actually breaking a federal law, but they often only got the council repercussions. This bylaw was eventually repealed and taken off the books in April 1969, and this is one event that was absolutely a result of the anti-war and anti-conscription protests on Melbourne's streets. Finally, some context for the nature of protest in Australia at this time. There had been lots of protests in Australia before the 1960s, of course. They had taken lots of different forms. But the May 1970 moratorium in Melbourne was the biggest single public protest Australia had seen up to that point. The people who were involved in most of these protests had very little experience of being out on the streets in any sort of numbers. While the moratorium had marshals, as far as I can tell, none of the other demonstrations had such infrastructure around them. 
From, I guess, the other side, the police also didn't have much experience with things like this. Now, I don't want to get into a discussion of the history and nature of police violence. That's a completely different and very important topic. But in terms of generally white people, both working in middle class, both men and women together, marching in urban and suburban streets in Australia, police violence, even police intimidation, hadn't been much in evidence and still really wasn't. You'll hear some mention of violence in the episodes about Monash and Latrobe universities, and that's noticeable because it was out of the ordinary. One other thing is that a number of the women mention that they have ASIO files, or that they think they were followed or had their phones tapped. ASIO is the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, and I guess it's the Australian FBI. The women who came from backgrounds of communist parents seem to expect this sort of surveillance, while for others it might have been a surprise, but basically became just one of those things they had to live with if they were involved in protesting for any length of time. So that's the context of what's to come over the next 15 episodes. The episodes are thematic rather than chronological, so you can listen to them in any order you like. Melbourne, Monash and Latrobe universities have their own episode. There's an episode on how artistic women responded, and of course one about Save Our Sons. There's an episode on the motivations of women who were involved, and one on the May 1970 moratorium as well. I should note that pretty much every woman I interviewed is white, Anglo-Australian. Australia in the 1960s is an Australia still functionally under the white Australia policy, so migration was largely white. And while Indigenous Australian women may well have objected to national service and the war in Vietnam, I have found no specific mention of their involvement in Melbourne activities. I should also note that I do not pretend this is an exhaustive history of protest, even protest by women, in Melbourne. A few significant women died before I had a chance to speak to them. And of course, there were many thousands of women at the 1970 moratorium in particular. And then there's all those women who wrote letters, or housed draft resistors, or spoke against the war at home or with friends. I am also, of course, not actually the first person to examine the involvement of Australian women in the protest movement, as I have discovered over the last few years. This is an history of the period. There is room for much more to be done. Every episode of this podcast has a bibliography on the website. I won't always say the full name of every speaker in the episode, but it will be noted on the website. The site also has some photos relevant to the period, links to other websites with useful information, and a few other bits and pieces that you might find interesting if, like me, you end up down the rabbit hole. I will also note that I've edited the interviews for use in this podcast for clarity and also to make sure the focus is on the relevant information. I hope you'll enjoy this exploration of an exciting and sometimes astonishing period in Australian history.